First of all, let me say what a joy it is for me to be with you at this conference on San Diego's most beautiful college and university campus. Uh, and my thanks uh, to Mark Pitts for a very generous introduction and to Mike McConnell uh, for the invitation to be among you. Uh, it's, a, it's an exciting adventure that you have started out in talking about uh, faith. God's blessing upon your work. And I, I noticed uh, under the, the theme that was printed on your, um, on your brochure, it was Science, Faith, and the Media, that you had this text from Ephesians. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. And when I, I saw that text on your brochure, I was delighted because it looked to me like a ready-made sermon text which would make my task easier this morning, but unfortunately this one doesn't. Uh, I read the whole fourth chapter of Ephesians, and I, I wonder what kind of people are these Ephesians anyway. Uh, they have to be reminded to tell the truth. Uh, not only that, but after admonishing them to tell the truth, it says, you who are thieves, stop your stealing. Now, I'm not aware what all of you are struggling with personally here, <laughs> but, but I doubt that there are many felons among you. 
Paul, whoever wrote the, the, the letter to the Ephesians, is trying to get the Ephesians to put aside their former life and live into their baptismal vows by living exemplary lives. And you and I would all agree that begins with a very elementary admonition, tell the truth. So in Ephesians, truth is talked about as ethics. I want to talk to you this morning about truth as Christology. That's the way the Gospel of John does. According to John, Jesus is the truth. That appears in the first chapter of John, in the famous prologue, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. And then the 18th verse, the Word became flesh, dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. In the 8th chapter of John, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. You shall know the truth. That is to say, who he is. He is the truth. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And in the 4th chapter, the marvelous story of the woman at the well. The time is coming, and now is, when true worshipers shall worship in spirit and in truth. So in the Gospel of John... Now, contrary to the, the letter to the Ephesians, truth is not an ethical norm. It's a description of Christ, who he is. He is the truth. And the purpose of the Gospel of John is to get us to see that. And John does that by using truth as a paradigm. A paradigm is a model that enables you to see the world in a whole new way. Einstein's theory of relativity in physics was a new way of seeing, replacing the Newtonian paradigm. Uh, I assume that the Higgs boson, which made an epiphany in Switzerland a few weeks ago, is another paradigm formulated by scientists back in the 60s as a way of understanding the natural world, what holds it together. Well, John wants to find a way to help the Greeks understand what holds the world together by using a new paradigm. Because the paradigms in the other Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are, are all Jewish paradigms. And they don't cut it for Greeks. Messiah, for instance, is, is an apocalyptic paradigm from the Jewish prophetic tradition and expiation or sacrifice, the metaphors associated with the cross, are all from the Jewish priestly tradition. And metaphors from either the prophetic or the priestly Jewish traditions of Israel were foreign to Greeks. But the words, truth, reason, logos, were Greek metaphors for divinity. So to proclaim the word or reason has become among us full of grace and truth is to announce the incarnation with a paradigm that could speak to Greeks open their eyes to who Jesus really is. And John's gospel wants to make the point that once you see that, or to use the biblical phrase, once you have eyes to see, the world is different. That's the point of the story of the man born blind, which you heard read from the ninth chapter of the gospel of John, and is the text that I'm going to speak from today. It's such a marvelous story, rich and complex. It's a work of art, really, with nuances and many textures. And and many don't grasp it at first glance, but when you come back to it, the the way you would return to a painting hanging in a museum, 
perhaps this time with a docent or with a guide, you discover why people call it a masterpiece. Joyce Carey, the author, wrote, Matisse peeled my eyes. Matisse's paintings enabled him to see the world in a whole new way. And the story of the healing of the blind man is there to do the same thing, to open our eyes. This is not just a miracle story. The church was not interested in collecting miracle stories. They were interested in stories that enabled Jesus to continue to speak to us. And that happens in this story. Jesus comes along the road, sees a man blind from birth, heals the man, then goes away, which is what happened historically. Jesus enters the world, ministered for three brief years, and then left. Jesus is gone, but those whom he touched are still here. So the story is about a man touched by Jesus who now has to explain what happened to him. The world can't see Jesus anymore, but they can see this man. So this story and our task as Christians is about having to explain why we are Christian. The world can't see Jesus. All they can see is you. Now look at the story. First, the man is harassed by his neighbors who aren't sure they, they like this changed person. And then he's turned over to the authorities who question and challenge his story. The authorities call in his parents who wash their hands of him. They say it's his life. Ask him. It's not about us. It's about him. So they bring the poor guy back to headquarters again for more interrogation. And this time they tell him Jesus is a sinner. So if Jesus healed you, there is something now evil about you. And besides, they have evidence that the healing took place on the Sabbath. Therefore, the healing itself is a violation of the law. You are now a felon. So, Mr. Blind Man, you're in deep trouble. So now what do you say? He says, all I know is that once I was blind, but now I see. The story ends with Jesus returning, which is what we believe will happen. Our creeds affirm that. Only the next time he will come in glory. And when he returns in this story, Jesus fires a parting salvo over the bow of the Pharisees, saying, you are the real blind people in this world. Well, it's an ingenious scenario conforming exactly to the situation the Christians who first read the Gospel of John faced. They were touched by Jesus in some way, by his words, by his deeds, their lives were changed. They are no longer the same people. But Jesus is no longer here. The world no longer sees Jesus. All they can see is you. So you can expect three things. First, your friends won't recognize you. You'll be different. You'll look the same, as ugly as ever, but you won't act the same. They don't, they don't quite know what has happened to you. Something, they will say, has come over him. You don't do the things you used to do. You don't hold the opinions that you used to. Your mind has changed. You think things differently now. 
they suspect something must be wrong with you. And secondly, the, the authority, the religious authorities, I should say, suspect something sinister has happened that doesn't because you don't conform to their expectation of what a religious person should look like. So you must be lying or else possessed by some demonic force. Your friends will take your spouse aside at a party, uh, whisper to her, what's come over him? I don't know. He's changed. Then they come back to the man. Tell us what happened to you. Once I was blind, but now I see. That's all I know. And that's perfect. Because we don't understand how God works in our lives. Sometimes we don't even want it to happen. We, we made other plans for our lives. I didn't ask for this. But it happened. And now I'm different. All I know is once I was blind, but now I see. So the first lesson to John's audience and to us is that conversion may make life harder for you. It resulted in the blind man facing harassment and suspicion and even estrangement from family and from friends, from neighbors. There are preachers, you know, who will say, if you become a Christian, your life will be a wonderful success. and You'll have no more sorrow or worry or pain. The fact is, your life may get worse. If you go out into the world changed, transformed, seeing things that you hadn't noticed before, not everyone will think that's a good thing. Uh, I think of Teresa Avila, who was battered about by a storm, nearly drowned in a flooded river, and who prayed, Lord Jesus, if this is the way you treat your friends, no, ma no wonder you have so few of them. It may also mean that you leave what you're doing and do something else. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, began his adult life as a slave trader, bringing Africans to the colonies to be sold as slaves. Ironically, the name of the ship he captained was the Jesus, and he saw nothing in Congress in that, and neither did anyone else. Slave trading was a substantial part of the great maritime shipping industry in England in the 18th century. And in the 18th century, England, like the United States today, was the world's greatest power. And the shipping industry was a major part of that English economy, providing jobs for thousands and thousands of people. And providing jobs is a primary motivation for government. It's like that, you know, today. Economics gives evil a respectable face. And we get used to it. And pretty soon we don't even see it until someone or something opens our eyes. John Newton went to hear the, uh, George Whitfield preach in the days that Whitfield was teamed up with John Wesley preaching to the miners on their way to work in the fields of England. And when Newton heard Whitfield preach, his eyes were opened to the evil of his ways, and he became an abolitionist, and then a priest in the Church of England, and wrote, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Those who have their eyes opened change the world. 
And there's a wonderful detail in this story. When Jesus comes upon the blind man, he takes a handful of dirt, spits on it, and makes mud. The last time that happened in the Bible was in the book of Genesis, when the Lord created Adam out of the dust of the earth. So what you are witnessing here is a new creation. And, and, and then look at this. He places the mud on the man's eyes, then sends him to the pool at Siloam, tells him to wash it off with water. Now everyone in the church in the first century, or John was written at the end of the first century, first and second centuries, listening to this story, would see it. It's baptism. Listen to the text. He went and washed and came back and could see. If you're baptized, that is, if you're a Christian, it ought to make that difference in your life. And the story says the difference it makes is that you can now see things that you didn't see before. I once was blind, but now I see. Someone has made a study of genius. I read an article about it. He studied a thousand or more geniuses to find some common threads. And I was happy to, to read that, that, that high IQ is not necessarily a requirement for genius. There, there's an organization, you know, for people with high IQs. It's called Mensa. I'm sure some of you are members of it. But, but I'll tell you, there was a guy in San Diego a few years ago who formed an organization for those of us who have no chance at all and getting into Mensa. He calls it Densa. <laughs> so, so being a member of Densa, uh, I was happy to learn that intelligence is no guarantee of genius uh, because intelligence is a faculty for storing and sorting information, but that's not genius. It's not having a lot of information that characterizes genius. It's what you do with it. Geniuses are those who can create something new and something surprising out of the information that is accessible to everybody else. That's why we're always saying, why didn't I think of that? It's so simple. There are evidently two characteristics of genius that he talks about that enable the person to do this. And what struck me is that they're also the characteristics of someone who's had their eyes open. And they should be the characteristics of Christians. The first is imagination. Imagination is the ability to create mental images. Science calls them paradigms. Poets call them metaphors. The Bible calls them parables. That's how Jesus opened people's eyes, with parables. The purpose of his teaching was to see the world and ourselves in a new way. So he took the stuff the ordinary stuff, the information of this world that was common to everyone and with imagination opened our eyes to a whole new world. Such as a man went down the road to Jericho, was beaten by robbers, left to die. Three men followed him down the road. Two of them were religious professionals. They look at the victim and pass by. The third is a Samaritan. Now, just that word Samaritan would set up an expectation in the mind of the one hearing this parable. If it's a Samaritan coming down the road, hold on to your wallet because he's going to rip off what's left of the poor bloke's possessions and probably do him in. I mean, we all know about Samaritans. Everybody knows about Samaritans. 
But Jesus said the Samaritan stopped, helped the man, administered first aid, put him in his car, took him to an emergency room, paid the bill. So if you would see the world as it really is, you must use your imagination and get past your preconceptions and your prejudices. And if you do, you won't see Samaritans as an enemy, as those you fear, but you will see them now as your neighbor. Christ has broken down the dividing walls of hostility. So you are no longer strangers. That's, that's the Ephesians way, the second chapter of Ephesians way of, of summarizing the Samaritan parable. Christ has broken down the dividing walls of hostility. And if you can see with Christ-like eyes in this world, there are no dividing walls between us. No more strangers. Jesus used parables to open our eyes so we could imagine a world different than the one that we live in and then start living in the new one. It's been said Christians don't believe in the future. They believe the future in. And those who have eyes to see have eyes open to the future, the way the world should be, and they start living in it. The power of imagination, that's the first characteristic of genius. The second is childlikeness. The author of the article said geniuses take a childlike delight, childlike delight in, in what they're doing. He said it's almost like play. And the author characterized it as wonder. And, and Einstein, you remember, said that he had a retarded development, so as a result, he didn't start wondering until he was an adult. Noam Chomsky said it's, it's wonder that prompts children to ask obvious questions sometimes to the distraction of parents. The family driving down the road in a car, the, the, the children ask, why do cows have horns? Why do birds make nests? Where does the sun go? Parents generally answer, I, I don't know. That's just the way things are. So most of us stop asking questions and accept the official explanation of the world. That's the way things are. Well, what separates genius from the rest of us is they never stop asking questions, which means they never lose their childhood wonder about this world, which is probably why Jesus said, unless you become like a child, you won't see the kingdom of God. So maybe being born again means you can see now the world as a child with wonder, as if seeing it for the first time. Saren Kierkegaard wrote, when I read the New Testament, I get the idea that we're all supposed to be giants. And if I can paraphrase Kierkegaard, when I read the New Testament, I get the impression we're all supposed to be geniuses. It's an interesting word, genius. It comes from the same root as genie, as in Aladdin's lamp. And what it really means, therefore, is spirit. A genie was thought to be your guardian spirit. And everyone has one. Now I'll go to one more story in the Gospel of John, the story of Nicodemus. And there, Jesus says to Nicodemus, the spirit blows where it wills. You can hear the sound of it, but no one knows where it comes from or where it's going. 
so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And I, I submit that that's consistent with what these geniuses say about their work. They say it just happened. Oh, they did some work, some, sometimes years of work, gathering data. And then one day, by accident, or serendipity, or in a dream, everything just fell into place. And they saw what they didn't see before. They can't explain it. It just happened. It's as if once they were blind, but now they see. Amen.